0: What makes someone great right now? Just try to think of someone who has achieved greatness, a great man, a great woman. Some of you are probably thinking about political figures, Winston Churchill, Elizabeth the first, Catherine the great. I mean, her name is Catherine the great. Some of you are maybe thinking of people like Henry Ford, Steve Jobs, captains of industry, people whose relentless enthusiasm built things and changed the way that we live our lives even today. Many people have done great things. But for many of them, there are other people in the story, people who have been betrayed, harmed, killed. Some of these great people who we elevate in our imaginations for whom we name cities or schools, and in some cases, for whom we literally build pedestals to put them on, some of these great people are not good. So we're fascinated. I mean, we love to hear stories of the great, even when they're not good, heroes, even when they're anti-heroes. And of course, we're also really interested by another kind of story, aren't we? That of the villain. What makes a villain? How does somebody become a villain? How does an ordinary person come to the point of doing extraordinary evil? Besides the historical figures we could think of, I mean, we could even use our free time imagining such villains. From Darth Vader to Lord Denethor, Maleficent to he who must not be named, from Frank Underwood to Walter White, we want to know what could lead someone to do terrible things, and just how far will they go to be the one in charge? So we're fascinated by the great and by the terrible. Today, as we continue our Advent series on the characters of Christmas, we will consider one such person, someone who was both great and terrible, a great man who used his great man who used his power to build things, to keep some semblance of peace in a troubled part of the world. Someone who, in many ways, enjoyed success, but also a terrible man who did horrific things to hold on to power. Well, consider the choice that had to be made when this king encountered a greater king, a better king, a more rightful king. And that is the same choice that you and I have to make today. Finally, we'll see that we need not fear the villain of this Christmas story, for the hero is far greater. So, Herod the Great was a man who was cunning, ambitious, he seized opportunities, he built great things. In some ways, sounds like when I cast him that way, the kind of people that we might even think about admiring. Fundamentally, Herod was a man who would be king, the man who was king, and the man who couldn't accept being anything but the king. But if we're really going to understand Herod, we're going to need to understand at least some of the backstory. Um, now, this is where I joked with Chrissy that I'd say, okay, please open your Bibles to Genesis 1.1. We're not actually going to go all the way back there. Um <laughs> We'll we'll go to Genesis 12. You don't have to open there. Um, But God made promises in the Old Testament. And we do need to start there to understand the context of Herod. He made promises in the Old Testament. He promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation. And that in you, all the families, or depending on your translation, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God promised to give his people a place where they would live and be his people. And he would be their God and God delivered on his promises. He rescued his people from Egypt in the Exodus. He brought them to the promised land, but of course, God's people failed over and over again. God would raise up judges, heroic figures that would rescue the people, but his people would continually fail. He gave them kings, kings could not save their people and everything went downhill from king solomon these great men were deeply flawed they couldn't save the people the kings sinned the people sinned the line of kings was broken and off god's people went to exile in babylon After this empire after empire came through the promised land and ruled the place, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Seleucids, they all took their turns ruling over God's people until a new hope arose in some people who Steve Dahm mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the Hasmoneans. So under persecution by one particularly tyrannical king, a priestly family named Maccabees rose up. They led a rebellion And the Jewish people kicked out their Greek overlords. This is the origin of Hanukkah, which is actually going on right now. So this new dynasty wasn't descended from the ancient kings of Israel. They weren't sons of David, but they were heroic figures, great men, who rescued the people from foreign domination. For about 100 years, they had a kind of somewhat independent kingdom of Judea, but then they were crushed by the Roman Empire, split into Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, places that are going to figure or did figure in our text today. And around this time, Julius Caesar, maybe one of the great men that some of you were thinking of earlier, appointed an Edomite man named Antipater to be in charge of Judea. This was a non-Jewish man ruling over the Jewish people on behalf of an oppressive empire. This man had a son, and that son's name was Herod. He got his son Herod a job as a local prefect in Galilee, where Herod served the Roman Empire, and his job was squashing local rebellions. Herod would find heroic messianic type figures people who wanted to save their people from the romans people who looked a little bit like the judges of old or the maccabees of a hundred years before and crushed them herod made his reputation by literally crushing the hopes of the people and killing their would-be kings Eventually, Rome lost control of the region for a few years. The Parthians supported another Hasmonean king who was kind of friendly with them. Herod had to split, and he ran off to Rome. and He told the Romans, "Listen, if you back me, I can raise an army and I'll go reconquer Judea for you. But you let me be in charge." So the Romans said, "It said very well. Go and conquer Judea, and we will recognize you. We will give you the title." get ready for this, the king of the Jews. So that was Herod's title. And that is what he did. He was successful. He raised an army. He fought the Parthians. He won. He took the throne and he established himself as the king of the Jews. But remember, Herod was not Jewish and he wasn't a son of David. He wasn't even one of these Hasmonean people. So he had a bit of a legitimacy problem. He tried to get the people on his side. He, he married into the Hasmonean dynasty. He married a woman named Marianne, who was part of that family, who was recorded as his favorite wife. Now, that's a whole other sermon for another day. We'll talk about that topic. Um, and he tried to borrow from the legitimacy of his in-laws. He had an ambitious building program. He built Aqueducts, theaters, fortresses, cities. He funded work on the temple. He even opened the treasury when things were particularly hard. He, when there was famine in the land, he gave gold to the people to try to help them out a little bit. He accomplished great things, and historians remember him as Herod the Great. But Herod the Great was not the king the people wanted or the king the people needed. This king of the Jews crushed their hopes to have a rightful king. He was the puppet king of hated foreign oppressors. There were plots on his life and there were assassination attempts. And Herod was constantly conscious of his precarious position. And this is the opening of the story of the text that we're reading today. Thanks so much, Aidan. Great job. So verses 1 to 6 of this passage set up a choice that Herod had to make. He's going to have to decide what to do about an unexpected arrival that challenges everything that matters to him. And it starts on an otherwise ordinary day. So let's imagine that Herod is in his court one day. He's sitting on his throne, talking to his courtiers. Maybe they're making plans for some new tax or some new law that he wants to pass. And then he sees a little commotion in the back corner. Somebody comes in and they start whispering to people over there. And they all start whispering to each other. And says, you there, what are you talking of? And they say, well, my lord, the king, there's a commotion in the city. There are magi here from the east. Now, depending on what translation you have in front of you, you might see that there were wise men or that there were magi from the east in verse 2. So these magi were prominent advisors, influencers in empires to the west of Judea the Medo Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, and now this Parthian Empire. Remember the people that Herod had to defeat in order to get his throne? The magi held a special place in the working of those societies. You couldn't be the king of Persia unless you had these folks on board. They were also magicians, astrologers. Magi is the root of our English word for magic. Hundreds of years earlier, Daniel, remember him in the Old Testament, he was a young Israelite taken into captivity in Babylon when they all got shipped out, and he was put in charge of the Magi. Why? Because God supernaturally did something that the magi claimed to be able to do. God gave Daniel the interpretation of an important dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had, and Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed that he made him the boss of all of these magi, these important advisors. And then in that job, among other things that he did, Daniel prophesied about things that would happen over the next 700 years remember i talked about the babylonians and the persians and the greeks and the seleucids and alexander the Great. well he prophesied all of that with eerie precision in daniel 8 you can go read that and go read the history next to each other and it's it's spooky how precise it is so these magi they weren't kings we sometimes sing this song we three kings at christmas time though it's Kind of, I don't hear it very much anymore. It's not exactly biblical. They weren't kings, but they were king makers, And they would have been pretty impressive to look at. They would have looked especially impressive en masse, which is probably what they were. Forget we three kings... Matthew tells us that they brought three kinds of gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh, uh, but there could have been a lot of them. And if you had magi and servants and camels and armed guards to protect the treasure, a whole train of supplies and gifts, I mean, it would have been quite the sight. It might be helpful for you if you think about um, in Disney's Aladdin, the scene where Prince Ali is coming in, make way, and there's this big procession that's amazing and impressive. That kind of thing might be a helpful kind of image. These folks would have made an entrance. So these majestic, influential kingmakers from the East show up in Jerusalem and cause a stir. Now on the one hand, this could have been bad for Herod. right? Maybe one reason for verse 3 saying that Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him uh, was because these kingmakers from the empire Herod just defeated are coming to scope things out. Maybe they're checking out the local garrison. Maybe they're trying to find some weaknesses. Maybe they want to install some pliable surrogate. But on the other hand, maybe Herod thought, if I play this right, this could actually be really good good for me. I could use this. If my defeated enemies come here and the people see them worshiping me as the king of the Jews, showing me honor, showing me respect, maybe even flirting with the idea that I'm divine, the way people treat the emperor. Okay, this could actually be really good for me. For Israel in particular, there was historical precedent. This would have echoed and sounded familiar to lots of first century people in Israel. Back in the days of King Solomon, the son of David, at the peak of Israel's monarchy, Solomon received a visit from the queen of Sheba. And it's recorded in 1 Kings 10 that she came with a very great retinue and with generous gifts. She came, she saw, she was amazed. She publicly praised Solomon, gave him royal gifts of gold and spices and precious stones. This probably made Solomon look pretty good in the eyes of the people. Wow, the nations are coming to our king to praise him. Remember the promises to Abraham that God would make him a great nation and then that nation would be a blessing to all the earth? Well, now it seemed like they were becoming a great nation and the nations were coming to their king. Could this be the fulfillment of all those promises? Well, in Solomon, we know that it wasn't. The monarchy went downhill. Everything was broken. The original son of David couldn't save God's people. But still, this was a powerful moment in their history. And if anything like that happened now for Herod, well, that could help him with his legitimacy problem. Imagine if these magi coming from the east with a great retinue and gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, seeking to worship the king of the Jews, magically turned to Herod. The people might like that. So maybe, Herod says, let's see if we can use this. He was an opportunist. He seized opportunities well. Imagine Herod starting to make his plans. Okay, um, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to clear the main street. They'll parade up to the palace. I'll stand at the top of the steps and I'll welcome them publicly. Maybe I'll tell a little joke. Dear magi, you must be wise men if you came to worship me. Ha ha, get a little crowd. They'll laugh at my jokes. They always laugh at my jokes because they know to do so. Um, then the magi will come and they'll bow down and they'll give these gifts. And I'll accept the gifts and I'll welcome them into a feast and it'll be fantastic. And then, <clears throat> my lord, the king, someone interrupts him. Now imagine these courtiers whispering to each other. You tell him. No, you tell him. I'm not going to tell them. I like my head where it is. And then one lonely soul says, my lord, the king, they're not here to see you. They say they're here to worship the new king of the Jews. Well, that's different, isn't it? So the reality of this visit is that nobody is coming to pay Herod the respect he craves. We see in verses 1 and 2 that the Magi came to Jerusalem, but look, it doesn't say they even came to Herod. No, in verse 3, we see Herod learning about the Magi who are going around Jerusalem and making their inquiries. They've come looking for the king of the Jews, and they didn't bother to ask Herod for directions. Imagine how spurned he would feel. Herod's Herod's kingship is not being validated, it's being threatened. So what do we know about this new king of the Jews? How do we know about this new king of the Jews? Why do the Magi even think there is one? Why do they travel all this way at this time? So for one thing, I mean, remember that Daniel had been kind of the head magi. 700 years before, they might have had the benefit of some things that Daniel wrote. I mean, certainly he gave all kinds of prophecies about what was gonna happen with empires in that part of the world, and it all came true. So when he talked about what was gonna come next, maybe they were very interested. But also, the king was announced. Now, the king wasn't announced in a newspaper. There wasn't an information bulletin on the CBC. There wasn't a tweet No, the king was announced in the heavens. The magi were, in all likelihood, astrologers. Now, little aside here, this is not in any way an endorsement of astrology or saying that that's a good idea to go looking for the stars and saying, well, if this planet is inside of Pisces, what does that mean? That's not what we're saying here. Um, However... The Magi, I mean, there was no astronomy at the time. There was astrology. And the Magi, they went looking for truth. They looked for it in weird places that we are in no way endorsing. But still, how amazing is it that God spoke to these guys where they were in a way that they were listening to? They didn't have the law. They weren't following the Old Testament covenant. But he spoke to them where they were and called them to find something better than what they had now there's lots of speculation about what the christmas star was it could have been a natural phenomenon god is king he is sovereign even over nature and god very well could have arranged for these planets to be in this location at this time in a way that would have looked like something really amazing to these magi um jupiter and saturn were apparently around that time very close to each other like they are this month actually, um, in ways that maybe these astrologers would have taken to have significance. There were other things going on in the skies, novae and supernovae and things, and it might have been one of those natural phenomena that God could have been using. Or, no less amazingly, God could have supernaturally revealed his glory from the heavens to call to these magi who were far from him. Either way, God called them, and they responded. They came. They probably didn't fully understand what it was. And they probably didn't fully understand what they were doing. But they came based on what they did understand. They recognized that there was a call. And they needed to come. The Magi weren't Israelites. They weren't following the rules of the Mosaic Law. I mean, they were astrologers. But God moved heaven and earth to reach out to these people who were far from him. And isn't it amazing... That God reaches out to anyone, to us, to people who don't deserve to hear from him. So back to the story. The king was announced and the king was predicted. At this time in Israel's history, when Jesus was born, when Matthew was written, everybody was talking about prophecy. Specifically prophecies like one that God gave to this Old Testament figure named Balaam. And if you're wondering, yes, the guy with the donkey. Now, in some ways, Balaam was a bit like a Magi. He was a wise man from the East. He practiced some kind of divination, weird stuff. He was not an Israelite, but apparently was genuinely spoken to by God. He was called by a hostile king to work against God's redemption, but ended up doing the opposite. I mean, it's a fascinating parallel. But the prophecy on everybody's lips in the first century was from Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And people in Jesus' time were connecting this prophecy to the idea of a Messiah, a rescuer, who would come and save them. And they were even misapplying it to other people. So the king's arrival was announced, the king was predicted, and even the king's birthplace was predicted. When we look at verses 4 through 6, we see Herod knows enough to know who to ask about this new development. So he gathers the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, and he asks them, where will this Messiah, the Christ, the rescuer, be born? And the answer is, in Bethlehem. There will be a ruler who will come and shepherd my people Israel. Herod's day is getting worse by a minute now why does it matter that he's from bethlehem what's the big deal this newborn king would be from the city of david he would be a son of david not a foreign edomite like Herod, not even like one of these Hasmonean kings who had rescued people. No, no, a true son of David, a legitimate king of the Jews. In terms of threats to one's throne, this is as bad as Herod could imagine, and even worse. This isn't some rebel who thinks he's somebody. Herod's dealt with lots of those. This is somebody. So Herod had a choice to make. So what's he going to do? He's got, as far as I can tell, three options. Option one, like the religious leaders, he could choose to ignore the new king. So just think about it. In verses four through six, Herod asks the religious leaders, you know the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for, the one you've been hoping for, the hero that you hoped would rescue you from everything you hate? Well, where's he supposed to be born? And the religious leaders respond, huh? That's an interesting question, King Herod. Say, this doesn't have anything to do with those magi who are outside causing such a big stir, does it? I mean, is that why you convene this council of chief priests and scribes? Because it's time for the Messiah? Herod, no, just asking. No reason. Oh, okay then. Well, the answer is Bethlehem. Now, what's next on the agenda? Shall we let the Pharisees and the Sadducees fight again, or shall we just break for lunch? They seem utterly uninterested in an event that's not on their agenda. Now, it won't stay that way. As Matthew's gospel progresses, these religious leaders will realize that Jesus is also a threat to their power, and then they will be the ones calling for blood. But for now, they just don't care what God is doing. They've got a religion to run. So ignoring the king is one option, but it's not actually a good choice for Herod, or even a real choice for Herod. Herod is smart enough to see the threat that this new king poses to him, and he's not going to ignore it. So option two, like the magi, Herod could choose to come and worship the newborn king. Look at the evidence Herod is presented with. This is somebody who's a descendant of the ancient kings of Israel, a true son of David. But more than that, this is someone whose birth was foretold hundreds of years before. His arrival was announced by a sign in the heavens. Who is he dealing with? This is clearly a greater king, a better king, a more rightful king. And there is no room for two kings on the throne so herod could have surrendered the throne herod could have recognized that this new king has the right to rule he could have laid down his sovereignty herod could have said like john the baptist he must increase i must decrease herod could have reacted like the magi he could have bowed down to worship the rightful king but no herod was a great man he intended to do great things he was not about to yield his throne So Herod went for option three, to resist the rightful king. So Herod made a choice. And sadly, it's a choice he had made many times before. Herod was a man who fought tenaciously and ruthlessly to keep his throne, to hold on to his sovereignty, to remain in charge of his own destiny. Woe betide anyone who would challenge him or even appear to challenge him for the throne that impulse that instinct left a trail of bodies in its wake Herod saw some of the most politically member connected members of the Sanhedrin the religious ruling council as a threat so what did he do well he had them eliminated he executed or assassinated over half of this ruling body over the duration of his rule Herod executed 300 officers of his court. After one assassination plot, because the feeling was mutual, Herod killed 10 conspirators at one time with their families, wives, children. He wiped out the Hasmoneans. Remember the family he married into to borrow some of that legitimacy? Well, that didn't go so well for them. Herod had a brother-in-law named Aristobulus who had a more legitimate claim to the throne than Herod did. And at first, Herod made him the high priest to try to get him out of the way, keep him out of trouble. But eventually, Herod grew suspicious, and he had his brother-in-law, the high priest, executed. Remember Herod's wife, Marianne, his favorite wife? He owed a lot to her, but he suspected her of plotting against him so he conscripted his mother-in-law to testify against her own daughter so that she could be executed. Then he killed the mother-in-law too. Herod wiped out the line of the Hasmoneans to ensure that none of them could ever challenge him for his throne. And it wasn't just his in-laws. At different times, Herod had three of his own sons killed for plotting against him. At the end of his life, as he lay dying, Herod knew that nobody would be sad about his passing. So he ordered all of the important men of Jerusalem to be gathered together into one place. And he gave the order that when I die, you kill them too. And then they will be weeping in Jerusalem. That order was never carried out. Because as soon as Herod was off the scene, people weren't much interested in following his orders anymore. But that is how Herod dealt with threats to his throne. So let's go back again and read verse 3 one more time. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I'll bet they were. Bad news for Herod means a bad day for someone. So who would suffer for this news? The answer is tragically some babies in Bethlehem and their families. Bethlehem was a little town, just a few miles southwest of Jerusalem, and it's here that Herod's sinful clinging to power reached its logical and terrible conclusion. For Herod to remain king, all rivals must be crushed. So Herod sent his men to kill the baby boys of Bethlehem. Like Pharaoh, who killed the baby boys of Israel to prevent an uprising, but missed one, this powerful king thought a few kids from poor, insignificant families would be a small price to pay to secure the throne of a great king. Herod was a great man. Sacrifices had to be made. Bethlehem was pretty small. It's estimated to have had 300 to 1,000 people, smaller than Puchkov, smaller than Nain, smaller than the Rabbit Town neighborhood that we're currently meeting in. Just a few hundred people. Maybe like Musgrave Town. Maybe a couple dozen boys under two. And they killed them all. Yet as shocking as that is, and it is horrific and shocking, it would have been barely a footnote on the reign of Herod the Great. Now actually, as we see in verses 13 through 15, Herod's men killed all but one of the baby boys in Bethlehem. The best efforts of the most most ruthless man cannot stop God's redemption plan. God's sovereignty as the king has no limits. And not only does he have the right to reign, he does reign whether Herod recognizes him or not. God intervened, and though this seems like a bit of a near miss to us, his plan for redemption was never in danger. It does, however, bring up some hard questions. Why didn't the angel warn all the parents of Bethlehem? Couldn't the angel have warned them all to stop the slaughter? Why didn't God stop Herod altogether? Couldn't God have prevented Herod from making this choice? Couldn't he have stopped Herod from being Herod? And if we're going to walk down that road, why doesn't God prevent all suffering? Couldn't God stop evil men from doing evil things? Didn't Jesus come into the world to rescue his people from evil? Well, yes, but Jesus did not come to instantly end all evil. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But until then, God's kingdom grows in the midst of evil and suffering. If God instantly ended all evil, that would include you and me. Evil is not just out there. Let's not kid ourselves into thinking that our sin is no big deal, that our sin could never lead to something like this. You might object, I'm nothing like Herod. I've never killed anyone to protect a monarchy. Well, maybe not. But what would you do to protect your heart's desire? What have you done? Lie? Cheat? Steal? Ignore the cries of people in pain? Put your comfort above others' welfare? I know that I have. In every single thing you do, every desire that your heart conceives, you have an opportunity to submit to the complete and total sovereignty of King Jesus. Or you can follow your heart's desires and do what's right in your own eyes, what you think is right for you. Now maybe you think I'm making far too, deal, far too big a deal of this. You know? How can my little peccadilloes exist on the same spectrum? as Herod's genocide. Well, Herod didn't start out with a desire to have a bunch of children murdered. He made a series of choices to occupy the throne of his heart, to reject the sovereignty of a greater king, and to ignore the growing sin within until it blossomed to its logical outflow. Matt Leahy's been preaching through the book of James, and kind of earlier in the pandemic, he preached from James 1, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth what? Death. So how does an ordinary person become an extraordinary villain? One step at a time. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a man acquainted with evil. He spent grueling time in the gulags of the 20th century, and he witnessed unspeakable horrors. And he wrote in his gulag archipelago something slightly surprising. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. And he's right. The problem is not out there. Now, I mean, there are problems out there, outside of me, but your most pressing problem is in here. Even if you are suffering due to evil, no matter how real and serious that suffering is, the most important question you can ask is not, why is there evil in the world, or why me? Instead, the most important question is, will I yield the desires of my heart to Jesus the King? Now, this is not The end of the story. And how grateful can we be for that? Look at how verse 19 starts. But when Herod died. Herod couldn't hold on to his throne forever. The king died. The new king of the Jews lived. Herod tried to eliminate the newborn king, but he couldn't stop God's rescue plan. One day, Herod, who resisted the rightful king, will stand before him. And that encounter will go rather differently. This is not the end of the story because the sovereign God has been working all along to redeem his people, and nothing will stop that rescue plan. We see throughout this chapter that Jesus is the fulfillment of promises to Israel. Hundreds of years before the events described here, God told his people where Jesus would be born that he'd be called out of Egypt, that there would be weeping in Bethlehem, and even, in verse 23, that there'd be an, that he'd be in Nazarene. Nothing in this chapter, nothing that Herod did was a surprise to God. If we look deeper, not only is Jesus the fulfillment of promises to Israel, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of Israel. Matthew's original audience, which was primarily, not exclusively, but primarily Jewish Christians in the first, second century would have seen parallels in the way that Matthew told this story. They would see how Jesus showed that Jesus is the better Moses. Like Moses, Jesus was born to be the deliverer of his people. A power-hungry king tried to kill him by wiping out a bunch of baby boys, but he survived and grew into one who would rescue his people and bring them to a promised land. Even more than that, we can see that Jesus is not just the better Moses, but he's the better Israel, like Israel, Jesus was brought to Egypt during a crisis. And then in verse 15, out of Egypt, I called my son. This was originally applied to Israel, but it's applied more perfectly in Jesus. Where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus overcame his wilderness temptation. Where Israel's kings failed to rule the promised land with justice and righteousness, Jesus the king rules with all justice and righteousness. Remember the promise to Abraham that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed? Well, this is coming true in Jesus, who is. Look back at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. How is he identified at the beginning of this book? Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is greater than Abraham's great nation, and he opens the way of life for all the nations, from the Magi to you and I. So God has been architecting this from the beginning. In this chapter, we see the king coming to his kingdom and the nations coming to the king. Nothing and no one can stop God's redemption plan, not the hostility of an antagonistic earthly king and not the indifference of the religious elite. Whether you accept him or not, Jesus is the sovereign king of the universe and of you. So the only question is, how will you respond to King Jesus? King Jesus came to rescue his people, but salvation isn't primarily external. Jesus didn't come to save his people from the Romans. He didn't even come to save his people from King Herod. He didn't primarily come to save his people from great men, unjust monarchs or greedy CEOs. Though his word does not neglect injustice or unrighteousness. But what you most need saving from is not great men. It's the evil that resides in your own heart. Every one of us wants to be, like Herod, sovereign over ourselves. Why do the words of the poem Invictus resonate with us so well? It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Why does that resonate with us so much? There is a throne in your heart, and it only has room for one ruler, You cannot serve two masters. Only when you submit to his great rule can you be made good. So how will you respond? Like the chief priests and the scribes, will you ignore the king? Will you coast along indifferently, doing your own thing, making your own decisions, ruling over your own heart in ignorance of your rightful king? Maybe you're even very religious, but your religion is about managing your sin Staying in control, trying to keep up appearances without addressing the root issue. Jesus didn't come to validate external works-based religion. Jesus came to be your Lord, your King, your Savior. Maybe like Herod, will you resist the rightful King? Maybe you're offended. Maybe you're offended by the idea that you need saving, that your self-rule isn't enough. Well, good, it is offensive. But it's also true. Jesus is a threat to your personal autonomy. and You never really were the master of your fate. If this season of COVID has reminded us of anything, it's that we're not nearly so good at controlling everything as we thought we were. Despite your best efforts, you're not a very good king for yourself. And if you refuse to submit to the rightful king, If you continue to resist him, it will not end well. Maybe you're not offended, but maybe you're afraid. Maybe you don't want to submit to some despotic tyrant. Well, that's fair enough. But Jesus is not just a ruler. Remember the prophecy we looked at back in verse 6. Jesus is also a shepherd. Herod was cruel and ruthless as a tyrant. But Jesus is tender and caring as a shepherd. Herod tried to kill to preserve his throne. But Jesus dies for his people. He is a king like no king you've ever seen. You can trust him. He's not just great. He is good. So option three then. Like the magi, will you come and worship the newborn king? Maybe you feel far from God, looking for truth in weird places. Well, you don't have to be religious or churchy. To see your need for Jesus. You just need to see that he's the rightful king of your heart. And come to him. Just come. You don't have to fix yourself up before you come to Jesus. You don't have to get with the program. Get your theology right. And learn all the churchy lingo. Like the magi just recognize that Jesus is the new and rightful king. He is the king And the good shepherd. So please ask him to rescue you. He is the king of the Jews. And the king of the Gentiles. He is the shepherd of the lost sheep of Israel. And all the families of the earth. He is for every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he is born for you. Let's pray. King Jesus. You are great. And you are good. And I pray that if there are hearts here that are resisting you, that you would break into those hearts. I pray that if there are hearts here that are ignoring you, that you would not let them ignore you anymore, that you would confront them with your reality. And God, I pray that you would help each of us in every small way and in large ways to submit our hearts to the rightful rule of King Jesus.